Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Ms. Aneri Patani. She's a national correspondent with KFF Health News, where she reports on a broad range of health topics, including mental health, substance use disorder, and the health of adolescents and young adults. She's also a fellow at the Bloomberg American Health Initiative. Through the KFF Health News, she'll track how opiate settlement funds are allocated and report upon potential discrepancies that may arise. And with that, I'd like to welcome Ms. Aneri Patani. Thank you for having me. The work you're doing is absolutely amazing and truly needed. Before we delve into the details about your work and about opioid settlements, I want to get your perspective on why it's important. So if you can explain how and why it's important to track the opioid settlement funds, I think it'd be very important for the audience to understand. Yeah, so the importance of tracking these funds really goes back to why state and local governments are receiving them in the first place. Hundreds of thousands of Americans have died of drug overdoses, and state and local governments sued companies like you know Johnson & Johnson, Cardinal Health, Walgreens, several others, because they say those companies aggressively promoted painkillers in a way that contributed to the hundreds of thousands of deaths. So the settlement money is really meant to save lives and address the issues of addiction. Um, so, you know, a lot of the researchers, policy experts, advocates, other people that I've spoken with um, on this topic say that some ways that we could use the settlement funds, like opening a treatment facility, for example, um, might be like more likely to help save lives than other potential ways of using the settlement funds, perhaps like investing in law enforcement initiatives. So tracking the money is a way of seeing, you know, is it going to have its intended impact? That's a great point, and I want to touch on that analogy, particularly because those who may not understand how the flow of money is truly dispersed out, it may seem like the quantity is quite excessive. So for many people, they may say, well, why don't we just invest in everything? But there are clear decisions, opportunity costs, if you will. For example, as you cited, treatment facilities versus investments in law enforcement. Explain what the benefits and downsides would be if a decision was allocated that may not be in the best needs of that specific community. Yeah, I think you have a great point that the opioid settlement funds sound like a lot of money when you say, you know, uh, altogether we're, we're looking at more than $50 billion. Uh, but that is paid out over, you know, almost two decades. And it is divided up between different state governments, different local county governments. Um, and so what that means is each place that is receiving a certain amount of money needs to be really strategic in how they're using it and what they're making it go toward. Um, and some places that means, you know, thinking out a long-term plan. If we start funding something now in, you know, 18 years when the, when the settlement funds stop coming, can we sustain it? Uh, will that resource still be there for the community? So every decision, you know, some folks are saying, well, right now, you know, fentanyl in the drug supply is really high. People are dying with very small, small doses. So we need to prioritize having Narcan. So everywhere I talk to people and interview them, there's sort of a different approach to it. But it's um, it's important to acknowledge that it's, you know, it sounds like a lot of money, it's limited and, and a lot of places do need to be strategic in how they're using it. Certainly. You wrote at least two articles through KFF Health News that I found particularly interesting. And I'm putting the links for those who are listening to the podcast to take a look at those links, which I highly recommend. 
in there you talk about the lack of transparency in reporting with some states providing these vague dollar amounts and when you talk to patients and patient advocates on the ground you seem to be getting very specific very mm -hmm. real solutions but the state reporting metrics seem to be quite vague in comparison why do you find that concerning so i think what we found with the states is first off it's it's pretty early on in the process so a lot of states just got money um last year 2022 and now they're starting to give it out um what uh my article involved was working with uh christine minhe who's the founder of opioidsettlementtracker.com to look at the legal documents whether that's you know laws or um agreements or executive orders that these different states have put out saying what they are going to report about how they use the money. So essentially they get all this money. Will they tell us how they use it? Will they say, you know, we gave $10 million to this program so that they could buy X things. Um, and the, what we found is that most states are not promising to do that we found only 12 states are promising to be that transparent. Like we put this amount of money to this entity for this program. A lot of others say, you know, we're going to audit the money and make sure it's used properly, but it's not clear that the public will be able to see how that money is used. Um, and that is where, you know, a lot of advocates, a lot of um, folks working on the issues of addiction, families who are affected have concerns about that because if they can't track where the money is going, how do they know it's being used to attack the issue of addiction? Instead, you know, we've seen with the tobacco settlement in, in years past, a lot of that money didn't go to anti-smoking efforts. It went to filling budget gaps. It went to, you know, new infrastructure projects. Um, in North Carolina, where I live, it went to subsidizing tobacco farmers. So families are, are worried that if they can't see where the money's going, how do they ensure it's going to somewhere helpful? That's an amazing point. Let's maybe take a step back and then talk more about how patients and patient advocates can monitor the settlement dollars. What is the opioid settlement tracker? I know that it's run by Ms. Christine Minhe. Uh, without kind of going into her turf, if you can maybe explain in broad terms and help patients understand how they can use that for their own knowledge. Absolutely. So uh, opioid settlement tracker is a website founded by um, Christine, who's an attorney. Uh, she's sort of been paying attention to these settlements long before they were in the public eye, so to speak. And she has um, different spreadsheets on her website that sort of do a breakdown for each state. So one shows how many settlements each state is participating in. So did the state join the settlement with Johnson & Johnson? Did they join it with Walgreens? Did they join it with whichever other company? So you can go on there and see, like, where is my state getting money from? Then there's another spreadsheet that shows how much uh, or how each state plans to divide its money. So will, you know, out of all the funds we're getting, 30% will be controlled by state governments, 50% uh, will be controlled by local governments, and, you know, another 20% will be controlled by some committee that's formed. Um, but every state is handling it a little differently. So she has a spreadsheet that kind of you can look at and say, who are the people in control of the dollars in my state? Who do I need to be talking to? And then the last um, spreadsheet she has is about this transparency piece and public reporting. And it shows, you know, for each state, what have they promised to report publicly? So that way, you know, if I'm interested in North Carolina, I can go to her spreadsheet and say, oh, okay, North Carolina promises that every county 
will publish an annual report on this one data dashboard. So at the end of the year, I should be able to go out to this dashboard and see how my county used its money. Um, and you know, that process, again, is different in every state. In some states, it might say they've promised no public reporting, in which case you know, folks from that state can, can compare theirs to others and go to their you know, officials and say, hey, why, why aren't we reporting um, how we're using this money? You write about this in an article last year in the fall where you talk about patients, for lack of better term, um, effectively being shut out or not as actively involved as they would like to with these state-formed committees, with these public-private partnerships. Talk a little bit about that dynamic and what patients can do to help ensure that their voices are heard. Yes, this is a repeated issue I have um, come across in my reporting. I you know, last fall wrote a story that included a, a mother in Ohio. Um, her name's Jackie Lewis, uh, whose son um, died of an opioid overdose. And she has been trying to get some of her, she has concrete ideas about what the money could be used for and how it could be helpful. Um, and she just wants to bring those ideas to the board in Ohio that is see overseeing most of the settlement money and will make decisions about where it goes. But she hasn't found a mechanism to do so. The board allows the public to attend meetings, but doesn't give them a chance to comment. And she's been, you know, trying to, Jackie's been trying to find some way to get, get her comments to them just for consideration. And um, it's been a real struggle. And I've, I've heard the same thing from, from family members all over the place. And the concern there is, of course, they are the ones who have seen addiction up close. They've seen sort of the places in the system where things fall apart. You know, I've talked to parents who have seen their kids in and out of treatment or, or jail or what is not working has sort of been pushed in their faces. And so they want to, you know, share that with, with elected officials. I think um, the folks who I've, I've seen do this are really, really persistent. Um, you know, they're, they're constantly going back to their elected officials. They're also looking at different levels. So um, this woman I spoke with in Pennsylvania is in touch with her county commissioners, but also with her state legislators, because there are pots of settlement money coming to, to both state and local levels. So she's trying every door she can to, to get into this conversation. And that's a great point. And I want to ask you a little bit more about that. When patients feel that they're not adequately represented or they're not being heard properly, there's a tendency to go straight to the federal level, your federal congressman, federal senator, or your state assembly. But what you're suggesting is that patients and patient advocates can be equally effective if they go to more local or regional forms of government. Can you talk a little bit about how patients can find out where those legislative bodies exist and how they can contact them? Absolutely. So uh, preface this with saying, you know, I'm I'm not an advocate. This is a little outside of my space, but it, but I do speak with a lot of advocates for my work and and um, am interviewing them on what you know they found effective. Um, so a lot of times at the local level, you know, uh, people find more success because their lawmakers maybe know them or, you know, they just have fewer constituents. And so if you are a repeated voice visiting them at their, you know, office in your town or county, um, they, they get to know you better and there's a little bit more of a human connection. Sometimes, depending on how small the community is, you know, kids go to school together with, with the councilman's kids or things like that. Um, but starting at a local level, so that means, you know, city or county are basically the places that, the smaller places that are getting money. 
Um, so that's often um, the mayor or city council or the county commissioners um, are the folks uh, dealing with opioid settlement funds. Uh, so you essentially for that, you know, go online, type in your, your county and your county government website will come up or your city council website will come up. And they generally have information there about when their meetings are held. Meetings tend to be public. You can go. There's often a public comment period where you can bring up whatever issue you want. And so I've spoken with folks um, all over the country who are doing that and bringing up the topic of just, hey, you know, how is our, our county handling the opioid settlement funds? Can someone share an update with me? Uh, and then when you get to the state level, it gets a little harder where you have to look up, you know, who are the House or Senate representatives for your state legislature that represent your district and contact them. No, that was great advice. And I certainly encourage everybody who is listening to this podcast to participate and then get engaged with the local, municipal, county government systems because that familiar, familiarity factor that you allude to is critical in having patients who are most affected being recognized appropriately. And there's a quotation in your article that I want to highlight, and I found this very powerful. They want to look at you as this angry parent who lost a child, she said, rather than a concerned citizen who wants to see a difference made for other mothers, fathers, and their children. That's powerful because it highlights how the patients and families most affected seem to be not given the recognition that they deserve. What have you seen through your interviews that has worked successfully for patients and advocates to gain that credibility? I think it's really a work in progress still. Um, I think when I speak to, you know, most that that quote in particular is from a woman named Mary Antonisi, um, who's in Altoona, Pennsylvania. She lost her 26 year old son, Sean, to overdose um, several years ago. And she's since then been really active in paying attention to the opioid settlements and money that's coming in and trying to reach out to county commissioners and state lawmakers um, about how it should be used and what gaps she saw in the system when she was trying for years to get Sean help. Um, and I think, you know, over time she is gaining recognition, you know, lawma more lawmakers are calling her back, but, but it's slow. And I think she would, you know, she told me she's still, she's still frustrated. That, that's why she has that quote, you know, she still feels dismissed sometimes or that, you know, her ideas are not taken seriously. And I think it's just, um, it, it's taking time for there to be progress um, and for folks to realize, you know, people who have lived through the experience of addiction or, or have a loved one who has lived through that experience do bring a unique sort of expertise to the table that does not need to replace, you know, medical professionals, law, law um, makers, but can be an important addition to that table. Now, certainly that's well said. I think the lived experiences of those affected is a form of data, and I think that it needs to be recognized as such. I want to maybe shift to a more macro, a more broader understanding of what's going on with the opiate settlements, particularly in the context of an example you provided earlier in the conversation about the tobacco settlement funds. Uh, there's this varying mix between oversight and transparency, flexibility and how the funds should be allocated versus having set standards to measure how effective the funds have been used. From your perspective, 
how is that complex balance being played out in these early days? So I actually spoke with uh, North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein, who uh, led a lot of the national negotiation around the settlement, so the, the negotiations for all the states. And this was something that he talked about a lot, where you know he and the other attorneys general who were involved wanted to make sure there were some standards for the opioid settlement funds so that they were used on the crisis because they saw, right, the tobacco settlement money go to a lot of other issues and they didn't want that to happen. But at the same time, they recognized that what each state needs or what each county needs to address addiction in their community might be different. You know, some places may have no treatment, um, so they need a facility, need to build a facility. Some places may have um, no recovery supports, even if you can get treatment, is there recovery housing afterwards? So. The needs are different in each place, so they wanted to maintain that flexibility. And so I think that's where you see in the settlement agreement the sort of requirements or the guardrails are, are there, but they're loose. So the national settlements, most of them require that 85% of the money that any state gets has to be used for opioid remediation, which basically means things related to, to opioids or, or addiction. Um, that's their attempt to kind of say, you know, stay focused on the issue. And along with that, they pro provide a list of potential interventions. It's called it's called Exhibit E in the settlement. Um, but it's basically things like, oh, you know, you could pay for treatment for people who are uninsured. You could create programs to help um, pregnant or um, parenting women uh, get treatment. You could pay for prevention programming in schools. And it, it gives a long list. But that list is not all inclusive. People can do things that are off the list as well. And in some ways, that flexibility means, you know, state and local governments could do really innovative things. They might be able to use the money to address housing issues or mental health problems or things that really underlie the addiction crisis. But some people also worry that that amount of flexibility means local governments, um, state governments could use the money on things that research suggests are not going to help, like promoting abstinence-only treatment instead of giving folks the option for medication for opioid use disorder, or paying off government debt, or you know, buying new police squad cars. So there, there's, there are pros and cons to that flexibility, and uh, you know, uh, A.G. Stein acknowledged that too, but that was sort of, in his mind, the trade-off they made to give states more flexibility. That's interesting. And you're referring to the 85-15 rule and how the allocation can be um, distributed. One of the questions from a clinical standpoint I have in particular is, as we're starting to learn more about addiction, about the genesis of quote-unquote disease, the socioeconomic parameters, do you find a willingness among the decision makers to adjust in how the funds should be allocated? Or is there this almost a first mover advantage where whatever is the thought of the day is how the funds will be allocated long term? I think that's a great question. Um, and I'll say, you know, for sure it varies. Every state that I report on, every local county government that I report on is handling things sort of different and, you know, depends on the individuals who are in charge and, and their um, you know, personal approach to this issue. But one thing I have seen is oftentimes, especially at local levels where, you know, this is a large amount of money that a lot of county governments are not used to handling and they're not often, you know, um, 
yeah, the county commissioners are not also expected to be clinicians or, or experts in addiction. So, so they're having to make these decisions without a lot of background information. Um, sometimes the money just gets funneled into what is already in place because that's sort of easy and, and go to. So if there's already a, a you know, um, drug treatment court in the county, then let's just give more money to that because we already know that's set up and we know it's working and, and it's a channel that we know. Or if, you know, for years we've spent uh, most of our money on, um, on the sheriff's office and having the sheriff, you know, uh, disrupt drug trade and do drug seizures, then let's just make, have this money go there too because this is what we know and it's easy. Um, that's not to say there aren't places that are trying to think innovatively, but a lot of times it's easy to fall back on that. What, what do we already have in place? Um, when a lot of advocates I speak to, the question would be, are those things that already have been in place, have they been effective? Yeah, there's that uh, complex balance between those affected and those in uh, positions to make the decisions. I think you highlight that quite masterfully in your write-up on actually your state, North Carolina, you, you analyzed and you found discrepancies. And I, I'm going to use a word that maybe you can push back on, um, bias. And you can tell me whether that's appropriate to use in this context or not. But there are certainly discrepancies between funds allocated in the rural and urban locale, and there are certain assumptions made, like population density and the cost of treatment, that led to misalignments, if you will, and how the funds were allocated and how they were effectively used. Uh, is that fair to describe as a bias? And what are being what is being done to help rectify against these discrepancies? So I don't know if it's fair to call it a bias, um, mainly because my reporting wasn't able to cover any sort of um, intentionality to this um, result. In fact, like when we're reporting on it, um, I think the, the goal was actually to distribute the funds by the severity of the crisis in, in different locations, rural versus urban. That is just not what ended up happening. So, so to step back a little bit, um, my colleague Ray Allen and I took a look at uh, the largest settlement to date, which is $26 billion coming from Johnson & Johnson and the three distributors. And in that agreement, the formula to calculate each state's share, the amount that they would get, used the state's population, as well as what proportion it contributed to the nation's total overdose deaths, residents with opioid use disorders, and prescription painkillers. And then a lot of states use that very same formula to distribute money among their cities and counties. And so again, like they thought by choosing, you know, por portion of overdose deaths, portion of uh, painkillers pres prescribed here, that they were reflecting the hardest hit areas. Uh, but in talking with academic researchers, the problem is a lot of those measures tend to reflect population. So what happened was rural areas that have been really hard hit by the opioid crisis ended up getting less money than larger urban areas. And some people say, you know, that makes sense. The big cities have a lot of people to treat. They have, you know, just more bodies to, to handle with this money. But I think a lot of other folks would say their rural areas of this country were hit first in a lot of ways by this epidemic. There's been generational harm there. And if we don't invest in it now, you, you're not going to eradicate it. So there are, you know, there are places that are trying to, you asked, how are, how are they trying to rectify this? 
in Pennsylvania, for example, um, the state made a decision that even if after they you know, used this formula to calculate each county share, if a county was going to be getting less than a million over the 18-year span, then they would just bump that up to a million. So every county at a minimum over the 18 years will get a million dollars. Uh, and that was a decision made at a state level. But in my in my you know state, North Carolina, that decision is not made. So instead, local governments are trying to work together. Like, how can we, if we're three small rural counties, can we pool our money together so that there's more of it and it can do something more impactful? That's interesting. And I'm glad you pushed back because oftentimes when people are using different forms of measurements, they will derive different results. And it's fascinating to see and what will come about in the future and how the different methods of allocation produce different results. And I think that that'll be a great learning experience for many of us to understand what are best practices. One of the things you're noticing in this distribution, as you alluded to in Pennsylvania, in North Carolina, is that there's different ways in which the state and county governments are interacting with the more local governments. Some are successful, some seem to be contentious in nature. Can you talk about what you're seeing that's working well and what's not working well as these different layers of government interact? Yeah, I think the states where I have heard that the process is smoothest are ones that did a lot of pre-planning. These settlement agreements were in the works for years. Um, folks knew, you know, this money was coming. It didn't hit until last year. So the payments didn't start coming until last year. But there was a lot of time to plan ahead and say, you know, we know it's coming. Can we, you know, can the state attorney general's office start communicating with the county association and meeting with different county leaders or local government leaders and think about how they want to work together? Think about some uh, maybe shared principles they want to agree to and how this money is used. Uh, so I think the places that uh, started that work early are, you know, maybe seeing more smooth communication, whether I don't think that necessarily means everyone is in agreement in those states about how to use the money, but they understand um, how to communicate with one another or just have expectations about how this will work versus um, some places that maybe didn't have as much uh, preparation, or at least that I could tell per my reporting, um, are having to figure those, that, those questions out now as the money is already flowing, which makes things a little more pressure packed. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ms. Patani. I want to ask you one last question that may be a bit off the cuff, but oftentimes as a reporter covering these very complex issues, people may often come to you as a subject matter expert. Can you maybe highlight uh, an instance where in your reporting and in asking questions that inadvertently you were being asked for your own advice? Oh man, I think I think this happens a lot, honestly. Um, and I guess on the one <laughs> hand, it's, it's flattering, you know, that people think I, I know so much, but I'm often um, very clear to say, you know, I do spend a lot of time studying this, reading about this, talking to other folks, but, yeah. but I'm certainly, you know, I'm not, an academic expert, I'm not a researcher, I'm not a clinician, I'm not any of those things, I'm not, um, you know, someone who has lost a loved one uh, to, to overdose, so I don't have those kinds of expertise. What I can share is kind of to be a, a, a funnel or like a, a navigator to say, here's all this information I've gathered from other folks and what is the simplest way I can distill it for an average person. 
that's sort of how I how I see my role. So a lot of times, even when I'm interviewing folks, you know, an average person, they'll say, oh, well, like how 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 should the money be used or um, how how can I go about getting part of the settlement? And I have to step back and say, you know, I'm not the person to give recommendations on how you should spend this money. I'm not a lawyer who can tell you how to file a claim, um, but I can point you towards other resources or let me give you the background to understand yeah. what's going on. In that vein, uh, could you please provide a good email address or contact information for patient, patient advocates or legislators who have may listen to this podcast and would like to reach out to you? Absolutely. They can reach me at Aneri P. So that's A-N-E-R-I-P at KFF.org. Perfect. And Ms. Patani, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Thank you for the conversation.